you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to uh, John chapter 17. We're going to continue looking at this prayer of Jesus, which has been called the uh, high priestly prayer of Jesus or the great prayer. Uh, I've just called it the prayer of Jesus, just to make it simple uh, and not to input anything in that might change the way you think about it. And I've asked you to look at it with fresh eyes. Many of you uh, have have read this many times or heard a lot preached about it, but I'm hoping that each time we come to a familiar passage like this, that you just take a, a fresh look. So let's read starting in verse 20, and, uh, and we're going to go through the end of the uh, chapter. Hear God's word. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be one in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, whenever you look at the... uh, this idea of oneness, particularly in this prayer, because Jesus mentions it so many times, the question comes up, what is that oneness that he's asking about? What is he referring to? And we look around the world and we see nothing like what we believe oneness should look like. And so we're looking, at, we're looking for oneness in a certain way, and I think Jesus is speaking of oneness in a different way. And uh, let me read a little something to you uh, from this. This is a great commentary. It's extremely technical, though. Uh, so I, I don't know if you'd want to spend money on it, but it has got some amazing uh, material. It's by Ray Brown. Um, and he, he says this, and, and the reason I'm, I'm going to quote this is because he, he broadly goes through scholarship going back to the church fathers on what everyone has thought oneness is. And, and then he said, and these are all good, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not exactly what Jesus says. We're, what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to look at his words, see what he defined as oneness. And I think that sometimes we, we can get caught up in the details and not just look at what Jesus says himself to define this oneness. But listen to what uh, Ray Brown says. Scholars have maintained that there's no real evidence in chapter 17 which envisions church unity and that in the verses we are discussing there is nothing about organization 
or community. So is this unity a question of ecumenical um, identification? In other words, is it all just church unity? People that all belong to the same church, the same denomination. And we know that Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Church have uh, had a, a certain kind of unity for many, many years, going back over a thousand years. Protestantism, not generally the same thing. Is it a question of Christians harmoniously working together without dissidence? Is the union of Christians with each other and with Christ partnered, patterned on the union that exists between persons, especially husband and wife? So are we supposed to say, well, what Jesus is talking about is this union that, uh, that we experience in the intimacy of marriage. Is it a mystical union? Each one of these is by a different scholar, each one of these ideas. Is it a unity founded upon the unity of each Christian with the Father and Son? Is it a union related to the Eucharistic mystery? This is, all of these are important. This has, refers to the Lord's table, which we all share. Uh, is it a unity that manifests itself in the power to work miracles? There's entire groups of Christians today that their whole identity is tied up in the miraculous and the, the uh, work of the Holy Spirit in the world in, in the stupendous ways. Is it a unity under the Word or the Bible? In other words, those who adhere to the Bible, they're unified. Any approach that places the essence of unity in the solidarity, listen to this, <laughs> I wish I could think like this. Any approach that places the essence of unity in the solidarity of human effort or endeavor is not really faithful to John's insistence that the unity has its origins in the divine action of God. What, what Dr. Brown is saying is that when you're looking at this, we're, we want to find unity in all of the categories that we're familiar with and comfortable with. Well, shouldn't unity be that we all have the same mission, the same drive, the same purpose, uh, that we all read the Bible the same way, that we maybe belong to the same denomination or the same uh, uh, general group of people, and it, on and on with all of these things. Is it, is it around the Lord's table? Something that we say every week here at Christ the King is that we serve open communion. You would think that Christians should, the one place that we should all be able to come and unite would be around the Lord's table. And yet Dr. Gerstner said that the most divisive words in the Bible are, this is my body. So when you look at unity, it can be, become so... Uh, overwhelming that we just get paralyzed and we give up and we start waiting for some future day uh, that unity uh, is achieved somehow. Well, I think that's a cop-out and I'll tell you why. Jesus prayed for it and I believe that the Father answered it on day one 
and that it has been going on ever since and that he defines it himself. We don't have to look for definitions in our own human endeavor, our own human efforts, but we can look for it in the action of God, in the divine action of God throughout history. And you see it. And so these two petitions are the final petitions that Jesus asks of the Father. One is for the unity of all believers that they may be one as we are one. That's in verse 21. And then that all believers will be with him and see his glory unveiled. And that's in verse 20, 24. So what are some of the things that Dr. Brown already laid them out, but what are some of the things that do unite us? They're legitimate. Things like family, uh, marriage, our race, our ethnicity, uh, our nationality, American, Mexican, Canadian, um, whatever that may be. Our language. Language often is a uniting factor. This goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel when languages were, uh, were mixed up. And then we see on the day of Pentecost that the, the, the people that were in the upper room were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in the languages of all the people present in Jerusalem that day. Pretty remarkable reversal of a curse on humanity. And then the gospel bringing a unifying, in other words, the gospel will be proclaimed and understood in every language throughout the world. Really something else. Uh, is it culture? Is it politics? You know, we have in our wallets sometimes a, a membership card to a, a particular political party or maybe a club or what have you. Uh, a religion. Even sports. Now, I bet I can get a reaction from you. Huh? What did you say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, see, already the hecklers are coming out. If you, say, if, you say, if you say Dallas Cowboys, you're going to get what? See? What did I tell you? This is proof right there. Dallas Cowboys. Yeah. Seattle Seahawks. Oh. Right. Cleveland Browns. Hey, there you go. There's no unity around that, right? Okay, so there's these things... But God said from the beginning, it's not good for man to be alone. So unity was built into the creation. It was built into the fabric of who we are as human beings. And even, even animals, they need to be together. Humans need to be together. People need to come to church. We think, well, I can watch online. It's not the same thing. It's just not. We need one another. We're going to start these life groups because we need one another in order to go out into the world and do our mission of, of calling people to Jesus Christ. And these are the things that are divinely ordained by God. It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper that is combat, compatible, fitting for him, someone that's, that's able to unite with him. And few periods in history are, it's, are more relevant than right now. Look at the hatred and the vitriol and the polarization. And this didn't start in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump. It didn't start with the election of 
Barack Obama. It didn't start with those things. We think our culture is being split apart because of some political person or something like they contribute to it, no doubt. But where did the disunity begin? Began in Genesis chapter 3 because in Genesis 3 you see Adam and Eve betraying their covenant with God and they were set against one another, against the creation, and ultimately against God Himself. There was estrangement or disunity. And we have been suffering with that ever since. It worked itself out almost immediately in Cain killing his brother Abel. And it went further when the other other, people Characters in the early chapters of the Bible began to take extra wives and it ended up killing people for revenge killings, blood killing, blood lust. And this has been the history of our race, of the human race. So Jesus is praying for something that is it, it is it is the world uniting under the divine action of the Son and the Father. So Let's just look at, real quickly, we'll run through that. What is the unity that Jesus is asking for? We'll just stick with what the Bible says. With what, not go outside of it into these other categories, although they're all important. But let's just stay with him. Look what he says in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So in this verse, Jesus has captured all people who will believe or trust in him. Now there's a difference between believing and trusting in him just as a mental exercise uh, of assent. Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus and he's a really nice person and a great guy, a good prophet and all of that. But there's a dividing line. And the dividing line is not if you think he's a good guy or a great prophet or a good teacher or a moral, ethical person. That's not it. The dividing line is what he defines himself. I in you, you in me, us in in them. This relationship of the divine trinity. That's a difference. And people that acknowledge, I've told you this since the beginning, if you acknowledge God in the abstract, that's great, that's fine. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying, acknowledge God in the abstract. He's saying to humanity, you must accept me and my Father on our terms or no terms at all. You're worshiping a different God at that point. Who are you worshiping? Is Jesus Christ the Son of God, is Jesus Christ Himself divine? Is He the second person of the Trinity? Is that what He's talking about as being the criteria for the world and then everyone else that believes in Him? According to Him, that's the criteria. Do you believe I am who I said I am? And do you believe that I have come to do for you what I said I will do? And every one of those things is expressed repeatedly, almost to the point that you can't miss it, in the Gospel of John. You don't even have to go anywhere else. Dawson did it for seven weeks with the I am sayings. That's what what they mean. Jesus is saying, I am God. But I'm not the Father, but I am the Son. And we are, both of us, 100% God, 
And you go, oh, I can't understand that. So, must not be true. Because your little pea brain can't understand it. Your little brain that evolved from a lizard. See how many people are not united? Our little brain that we think we understand everything. We can't understand the Trinity, but you can understand what it represents and what it means. And that's what Jesus is talking about in verse 20. I don't, I'm talking about a unity that has gone back to the first believers and is still there today. We may disagree about a lot of things with the Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and even other Protestant denominations. There's a lot of stuff we don't agree on. But one thing that does unite us and has always united the true believers of God, regardless of how that faith has been worked out in their lives, has been the fact that they know who Jesus is and they know what He came to do. And He didn't come to give us a good example. He came to die for us, for our sins, in our place, to make an atonement for us. And around that, Human beings from all over the world, throughout the ages, and across cultures, across languages, across everywhere, have believed and do believe. Jesus' Father answered His prayer on day one. And when we try to cram that unity into our own uh, inventions, we end up losing the real meaning of unity. So, there's one. So far, here's a, a quote from... Um, Uh, Don Guthrie and his great commentary. So far, Jesus has concentrated on those he had taught, but then he switches to those who would believe through the disciples' testimony. That's verse 20. He made no distinction, listen, between those who heard him personally and those who had heard him through others. Imagine that. You stand on the same equal ground as Paul and Peter and and. James and John and all the rest of the original believers that actually saw Him. We stand in that same place. He gathered us up and brought us into that same room, that same house, that same home that He prepared. He prepared for them and for us. We're not a a level below. We stand shoulder to shoulder with them in our identity in Christ, as people who believe. He made no distinction. For both, the, for both groups, the original disciples and us, there was a prayer for unity. Again, the pattern, now listen to this, it's brilliant. The pattern for unity is the relationship between Father and Son, verse 21. I'm going to look at that in a second. The basis of the unity is abiding in the Father and the Son. The purpose is evangelistic. And I'm going to add a couple more to that. I think there's more than just evangelism. The cycle is faith leading to unity, which leads others to faith. So first of all is the relationship. The unity that God is talking about and that Jesus prayed for is a relationship that we understand, I just mentioned it, the Trinity, between the Father and the Son. Anybody that says, well, Jesus is, uh, uh, Jesus is just a prophet, just a teacher, just a, a good moral man, uh, that's not what we're talking about. There's no unity in that because there's other people like that in the world. 
There's Buddha, there's Muhammad, there's, uh, uh, you know, Gandhi. You can name any teachers that were moral and good or whatever you think they were good. You can name any of them. But only Jesus came and said, I'm not going to show you the way. I am the way. I'm not going to show you how to live well. I'm going to live well. And then you trust me and that righteousness that I earn for you will be imputed to you. So that you can then go on and live righteously. Live a holy life. In other words, it's transformational, not exemplary. It transforms you. It doesn't just give you an example. As many, many teachers have said, if Jesus is only an example, He will crush you. Because you can never be like Jesus. That was what was wrong with the, what would Jesus do, the bracelet that we all used to wear. Well, whatever he did was going to be a whole lot better than anything you could do, so it just crushes you. But if you say, what did Jesus do? Lived a perfect life, died in my place, came back from the dead and said, if you will trust me with your whole life, all your mess and all your sin and all the other junk, if you'll trust me, I I will save you. I will free you. Then you can go out and live the way that I've asked you to live. See, one thing leads to the other, but if you get them backwards, you don't have the gospel, you have religion. And that's the pattern. Relationship, abiding. Jesus already talked about this in chapter 15. Look at how many times He uses the word in in this passage. You can go through every line. I think there's one verse that doesn't have the phrase in you, in us, in them. This interconnectedness and yet we live in a world where we have things like Facebook and Twitter and all we have hundreds maybe thousands maybe tens of thousands maybe millions of followers or friends or people and yet there's we're so disconnected and even in churches Christ the King's been around for over 20 years I've been here 18 years And there's a lot of times when you come to church, you don't even know that this little group of people right here, we don't even know who they are. And so the community groups and living in community, it's important that we know who we are. Because if you try to face the trials and troubles and suffering that is out there alone, you will be destroyed. There's no way that you'll make it. Somebody has got to be there by your side as you make your way through uh, this, what the, the old poets used to call this mortal coil of life. We need our family. We need our friends. We need our church community. So there's this abiding. And then there's love. What in the world do we mean when we say love? Because Jesus mentions it numerous times here in this verse. You loved me. I loved you. We love them. Hopefully our love that's in them, in us, will be in them, and so on and so forth. And we think that love is a feeling. And it can engender a feeling. But love more than a feeling is what? It's a commitment. It's saying, I will love you. In sickness and in health for better, for worse, till death do us part. You know, those types of things. It's saying, I will stay and I will sacrifice for you, for your good, 
even at my expense. This is how the Bible defines love. It says, I give my son to you, my only son, so that you don't have to be condemned, but so that you can believe and be saved through him. This is what John is talking about when he says love. It's love that is grounded in a commitment of service and sacrifice. And folks, I don't have to even argue for this. You know it intuitively that if we live like this with the people around us, the world would change. Yes? If we sacrificed ourselves, well, you know what? That person's being selfish. Okay, I'm going to give more. Well, but they don't only, they're, they're narcissists. They only think of themselves. Give some more. Well, you're saying they can just walk all over me. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. You may actually have to suffer. God forbid, but you may have to suffer for the good of somebody else. But I'll tell you, suffering is anathema to us. We hate it. We don't like it. We don't want anybody taking advantage of us. And yet we see Jesus defining love by Him giving Himself to us at His own expense. The Father giving Himself to us at His own expense. Now, if a husband is slapping his wife around or beating his wife or somebody's trying to break into your house, you know, you have the right to defend yourself. Those are different. Those are exceptions. But there are times when we can suffer and do some good, maybe actually redeem the life of somebody at our own expense, and we won't do it. We won't pay the price. And we put ourselves before someone else. Those are the usual things. The exceptions are are these others that we could deal with separately. It's love defined by God Himself in sharing and giving His life for us. Not so we won't have to give our lives to others, but so we can give our lives away and not fear, not be afraid. I just can't believe the way everybody's wringing their hands today. And they have for centuries over everything. And there comes a clarion call from this prayer of Jesus, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Will you trust me? Will you? Will you not fear, reject fear, and embrace the Savior? And he prays for a glory shared. Look at 22 and 24. A glory that defines who Jesus is and what he came to do. Now, he says, we're going to share it with them. And in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, speaking as God in God's voice, said, I will share my glory with no one, with nothing. So what does he mean? He's not going to make you and I gods. He's not going to make us divine. But he is going to raise you up into a union, unity. He's going to raise you up into a relationship with himself that literally causes you to become born again. Born anew. Born from above The life that you have in you is divine life and it can't be taken away. It cannot be taken away. So what's the purpose? Very quickly, look at uh, verse 25 and 26. The purpose of, of this unity is to make the Father known. 
And look, we could, we could find a person that is in a completely different denomination from us where we disagree with them on many doctrinal issues. But if you can do what we did this morning, the Apostles' Creed was one of those early unifying statements because the early church fathers understood the dividing line and so they codified it in the creeds. And so when, when you find people that you may disagree with on other doctrinal issues, if they can say, no, I believe Jesus is God, He is the Son of God, He came to save sinners of whom I am chief, and uh, his, his death on the cross unites me with Him and you with me, hey, we're united. And we can accept that person as a brother or a sister and a member of our family. And we understand what that is and what it means. So making the Father known. Evangelism and a witness to the world. You see, if we concentrate, think about this. If we quit squabbling over denominations and all these other little things that we, that we disagree on, if we could understand the cone. How many of you have been in the class where I taught the cone of certainty? There. Good, that's better than I thought. You need to get in. Uh, I'll share it with you today if you want. The cone of certainty. If you understand what the real glory of God is, the real glory of Jesus Christ, and you focus on that, and the world saw us all speaking to that, all giving our lives to that thing, that glory, Christ on a cross for sinners, raised from the dead so you can have eternal life, filling you with the Holy Spirit so you can wrestle with sin and darkness in your life and and give the glory to God. All of those things, if the world saw us doing that, they would say, wow, this is really something. And that's something worth doing, isn't it? Wouldn't, Wouldn't you be willing to do that? Of course, love, sacrificial, they need to see us sacrificing for one, actually giving up ground. You know, Madi V and I have been married a long time, and we have fought. We've we fought. And we have. We're better fight, Better fighting than any of you. We'll arm wrestle you and show you how good a fight. You know. Now we stayed together, married, but let me tell you, it's not because we did this. It's not because we sacrificed or anything else. It's because Jesus sacrificed for us, and we both bought into that truth at a crucial time in our lives. And it was that that drew us together. That. That in our crisis moment, in the moment of greatest division, we found unity, not in me coming home earlier or sending her flowers and not her having a wonderful warm meal for me every night. That's never happened yet. (laughs) No, All those things are good, but the unifying thing was that at a critical point of division in our life, we threw everything to the wind and locked our arms around Jesus Christ and His glory, and we gave up everything else for that. It became the the target, the horizon, the common horizon, and as we moved towards that, we found unity in Him. It's amazing. And then I added this one. It's not just evangelism. It's worship. Look at verse 24. He says, I want them to be with me where I am and to see 
my glory. That means worship. In any, any part, you open any page of the Bible, and you're going to see the, the overarching narrative was God with us. We need to get back to the garden. God's presence were in the garden. We were thrown out of the garden. Moses built a tabernacle, a tent, to house the glory of God like the tree of life in the garden. And the tent moved with them. When they got to Jerusalem, they overthrew the city of Jerusalem and built a temple so that God could live in the center of them. This is a theme that goes throughout. And in John chapter 1, we, verse 14, we have seen His glory, Jesus, the glory of the only begotten Son, who made His tabernacle with us. He came and lived with us in the flesh. So it's making the Father known. Evangelism and witness to the unity will accomplish these things. It will accomplish love. It will truly transform our hearts. It may take a lifetime. That's okay. Are you on that track? Are you on that way to loving sacrificially and in service to others? And worship. Are we looking for God's presence in our lives individually but also in our church? And this is what Dawson has worked so hard at, to get the community. We've got, to com- we've got to build our community because only in building the community can we reach our larger community. So how do you do this? Well, you know, knowing and loving God as our Father through Jesus' His Son and the power of the Spirit, who He is and what He came to do, if that's the unifying thing, if that's the glue that is holding us together, then we can actually have our hearts transformed. We can find allegiance. You know, the the kids still pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible. Indivisible. Think about it. Allegiance, loyalty, having your hope grounded in the person, not in your denomination, not in your national identity, not in your ethnicity, not in your race, nothing like that, but having your identity in this man who said this, the time has come for the Son of Man to enter His glory. This is from John chapter 12. Truly, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone, but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. And those who lose their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me. Because my servants must be, listen, my servants must be where I am. The Father will honor anyone who serves me. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Is this going to be easy? No. Now my soul is deeply troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He's talking about the hour of His cross, the hour of His death. No. I was made for this hour. Father, bring glory to your name. And a voice was heard from heaven. I've already brought glory to my name and I will do so again. And the crowd thought it was thunder and an angel speaking. And Jesus said, this is the voice. This voice was for your benefit, not for mine. 
The time of judgment has come. Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. And when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Do you see? That's unity. I will draw all people to myself. And how does he do it? He does it by being ripped to shreds. By losing his life for others. By giving everything. By being torn, literally torn apart on the cross. And in his eyes, he was thinking, in his mind, in his heart, he's thinking of you and I. How can I put to death death itself? How can I destroy it? Only by going there and letting the sword of death pierce my heart and new life spring from that heart to everyone who will trust me. There's the love and the unity of our God. Will you trust Him? I I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, we love You and thank You. It's almost too much to get our heads around how much You've loved us. You loved us the same way You loved Your Son. And You gave Him for us all. And Father, I pray that uh, as we in this 21st century with so much hatred and anger and vitriol against one another that this kind of unity will be seen in your church, in your churches, across the denominational lines and across the races and ethnicities and national interests and all the rest that your people will rise up and own their identity as being in Jesus Christ and in the Father. And if we'll do that, I think we can Be faithful to the prayer of our Savior. We ask this in His name. Amen.